ready? And now, coming to you live from just below the debt ceiling, keeping a sharp eye on Congress and a passing eye on the science fiction field, it's the Coot Street Podcast with Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahd. I'm really impressed that those of you in other parts of the world pay attention to our debt ceiling <laughs> and our maniacal politics. How could uh, we not? It's like it's like a bad bloody Doonesbury cartoon or something. I don't know what it is. It's, you know, f- is- from a, I remember back in the 90s when the, the government shut down. And sort mm-hmm. of going, it's like a third world country. What is this? Well, I it, it, I, I can't explain it at all. I mean, it's it's, it's just absolutely. Um, you're right. It's Doonesbury is the best way to explain it, and it's not it's not even science fictional. It's not even dramatic. It's it's just incredible stupidity. But it it raises an issue that that I think I, I was going to say it's not even science fictional because. Not even the most cynical, not even Pohl and Kornbluth at their worst imagined politicians as utterly and determinedly and resolutely stupid as we seem to have in the United States now. <laughs> I, I think you're probably right. And I have to say, the thing that struck me the first time this happened in my lifetime was that I was amazed that it could happen. Not that two sides of politics could disagree, because that happens. Uh-huh. Not because one side of politics or the other could be sufficiently obtuse that they're willing to tear down the entire system just because they wanted to, but that there was a mechanism in funding Congress in funding government that said, well, if they disagree, it all just closes down. That I um, can't even conceive of. It's 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 a kind of bizarre thing that I don't think is actually in the Constitution. Actually. What the Constitution says, because, of course, mm. we read tons of this sort of thing. I do. I don't uh, know. And I believe the 14th Amendment, Amendment yeah. it says that the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. That's an That's amendment right. that was added after the Civil War. Yes. So basically, you could make the argument that this small, narrow sliver of extreme right-wingers, and it is. I mean, it's, this is not a this is not a balanced uh, uh Debate no. where no. one e- each side is equally entrenched. This is a group of lunatics on the right. In a sense, what they're doing is unconstitutional. So the Constitution does not permit you to shut down the debt of the United mm. States. Now that's the debt ceiling. That's different from shutting down the government. Shutting down the government is just. And maybe Kurt Vonnegut could have thought of it. <laughs> He's the only one that comes to mind. I, I guess what a lot of it comes down to is what this uh, "shall not be questioned" actually means. You know, because no one's saying that the U.S. government will not pay its debts. It's just going to mess about about when. Uh, I suppose that's what it amounts to. I mean, there are some legal scholars that have said the president could go ahead and Mm. raise the debt ceiling on his own using the Constitution. No president has ever done that, but no Congress has ever done what this Congress is doing. Well, hang on. Now, what does all this have to do with science fiction? You it might. It doesn't. Ask? I was just sort of saying that it was on at the same time. No, it has a lot to do with okay, science fiction. Okay, tell me fiction. how. It has an okay. amount to do with science fiction. Okay. How does the intransigent right-wing Tea Party uh, people refusing to fund the uh, the government because they want to tie it erroneously to the health care changes link to science fiction, Gary? I'm glad you asked me that, Jonathan, because science fiction's reputation, and this has to do with a lot of other things that are coming into play, such as the fact that our friend Karen Burnham told me that most of the NASA engineers that she knows now uh, and the scientists didn't grow up reading science fiction. We used to believe that science fiction 
was a force for promoting scientific education, logical thinking, mathematical thinking, um, some kind of progressive thinking in, in, in at least a technological sense. And in effect, the rise of science fiction, going back all the way to Gernsback and possibly all the way to Verne, was based on the assumption that knowledge generally is a good thing. We now have a political situation in the United States in which one could argue that stupidity is more marketable than knowledge. Well, yes, well, arguing that, that stupidity isn't more marketable than knowledge is probably difficult to do these days. Certainly, stupidity seems to be very popular. You know, hmm. uh, and certainly, if you, if you look at science fiction film, you'd argue that science, the history of science fiction is actually the the the, the, the move from small explosions on land to large explosions in space. On on the on the page, something else. Um, it is interesting, though, I guess, to look at it as a feeling about the value of knowledge and an awareness of science and mathematics. I mean, we talked the other week about canon and mm -hmm. how that was extrapolated from a deliberate act in the early 20th century to uh, build a commonly accessible body of great, great literature. And if you go through the early part of the 20th century, and particularly with my, with my limited but not non-existent knowledge of U.S. history, there was a very ardent pro-education, pro-science, pro-math, pro-logic, you know, sort of mm -hmm. uh, move that went through the whole New Deal and everything. I mean, down to the point where my wife Marianne's uh, parents were both school teachers, her, and her father taught geology for many years. And the uh -huh. tools that he was using, the equipment that he was using, uh, as recently as 10, 15 years ago, was stuff that was purchased back then. It, you know, there, there were geology s samples and sets that had been purchased in the 40s and 50s and, and given to mm. schools. You don't see the same focus any longer, unfortunately. And that impacts on science fiction because, after all, what is science fiction but not an attempt to predict the future, but an attempt to analyze the present by extrapolating to the future? Well, I think science fiction also is based on the assumption that the future will be different. And... And, and, and you can look at that from a dystopian or utopian or a simply extrapolative point of view. Um, the, the assumption behind science fiction is that young readers, and this is going back to, to Gernsback's editorials even, and to John W. Campbell's editorials, that young readers will grow up recognizing that they can form the future. The future can be a nightmare. Uh, the future can be you know all the things we thought we would have with colonies on the moon and so forth and so on. But the idea that that it can be changed, that it will change, and we can control the change. Uh, that is always, I think science fiction has always been in opposition to the notion of revelation, which is that the future will be revealed to us as whatever God you choose mm -hmm. decides to reveal it to you. Um, and, and that idea seems to be what underlies a lot of the Tea Party theology, and it is theology, it's not science. These are people who talk about creationism, sure, sure. these are people who talk about, you know, um, the, uh, the, the uh, what do they call it, the, um, uh, the rapture, and so forth and so on. That's, that's a kind of anti-scientific thinking which we were perfectly comfortable with in 1540. <laughs> well, also, though, you always have to sort of apply the William Gibson quote about the future not being, well, the, 20, you know, the future not being evenly distributed, which I paraphrase mm. badly. 
because, of course, this doesn't necessarily apply in the hills of Tibet, where maybe life is an awful lot like it was a long time ago. And even then, oh, it's I changed. That's, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And there, but but the 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 idea that the future is inevitable um, in a technological society. Let's put it. Let's let's limit it to that way because you're right. There are places in New Guinea, places in the Amazon rainforest, I suppose. Um, where the culture doesn't seem to change as much generation by generation. But the notion behind science fiction seems to me is that the world will change generation and generation. And even if you're a remote tribe in the Amazon rainforest, at some point you're going to notice that that rainforest is disappearing at however sure. many thousands of acres per day it is. In other words, the alterations we make to the world affect eventually will affect everyone. Yes. There's a story, interestingly enough, I was thinking about um, a writer who has never been thought seriously as someone who anticipates the future in any meaningful way, and that was Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Um, but Ray Bradbury addressed this exact issue in a short story of his called The Highway, which I believe was included in maybe The Golden Apples of the Sun. And it describes a culture very much like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. it, it describes a poor Mexican farmer uh, and his uh, family, and they kind of, they live near a highway that stretches between California and Mexico. Um, and they've been living the same way for generations. And sometimes they'll take things like hubcaps off of American cars and use them for bowls and so forth and so on. And one day he realizes that all the Americans are frantically driving north out of Mexico to get back home because the atomic war has come. We have to get home because, you know, the, the, the atomic war has come. The world is coming to an end. And it's a classic Bradbury Cold War uh, awful warning. Bradbury was, you know, Bradbury wouldn't have been able to write a third of his short stories if he hadn't believed an atomic war was coming sooner or later. Yeah. But, but at the end of the story, the, young, the, the old Mexican farmer, uh, here's one of the Americans shouting, the world is coming to an end. And he says, what do they mean, the world? Meaning, from his point of view, Los Angeles being vaporized isn't going to affect his daily life that much. Um, and now we know, obviously, that it would if you get into nuclear winter and that sort of thing. But his point of view was that the world was the world he lived in and not the world we lived in. Mm -hmm. And that's very much related to what you're saying about people in remote tribes of Tibet. Sure. And how their worlds have, well, don't mm -hmm. change the same way, well, haven't changed the same way ours have over the past two centuries where um, I mean, because i was thinking when you said earlier on earlier in the conversation that uh science fiction is based on the idea that the future will be different mm -hmm. i mean that's a profoundly modern way of seeing the world really isn't it because for a long long time uh, at most the future would be very very mildly different now we expect the future to be dramatically different and we always yeah and science fiction unlike most thought patterns, I suppose, or most dogmas in history, science fiction has always overestimated the rate of that change in some key areas and radically underestimated in others. Uh, for example, you look at science fiction in the 50s when it looked like, okay, the space race had begun. We were dealing with the rocketry. We were dealing with going to them. So the model of the future that evolved out of the post-war era, out of the V2 rocket era, and eventually into the Atlas and Saturn era, was that the future had to do with rocketry and outer space, outer space ex mm -hmm. exploration. 
it turned out that that wasn't where the future was at all. Yes. That really didn't amount to much. The only writer I can think of who suggested that the space program might be shut down uh, was Frederick Brown in a novel called The Lights in the Sky or Stars, which deals with, takes place decades after we've basically given up space exploration because it's too expensive. Yeah. Um, and he was not what most people would have considered a player in science fiction extrapolation back then. He was just a basically a, a pulp writer, a mystery writer, who wrote whatever he could sell. It's interesting seeing... Which, which, yeah. Well, the, the, question, the question this raises to me is that sometimes the most interesting one-off uh, bullseyes that science fiction gets haven't come from the major figures in the field. They've come from writers just throwing out an idea, uh, which is a good story idea, and I, don't, I, think if you'd ask, I think if you'd ask Murray Leinster in 1946 whether he thought that his story, A Logic Named Joe, which essentially describes the Internet, whether he thought that would happen, he probably would have said something like, I haven't got any idea, it was just a story hook. And also what's interesting with those kind of ideas is they tend to have been left-field oddball ideas at the time, not part of the major dialogue that was going on in the field, not the common subjects that were being discussed absolutely. in the field at the time. And yeah, so you're really you're looking right. back and picking out of these weird, odd outliers and saying, well, you can see that actually had, you know, retrospectively, uh, had some uh, validity and, and came true, or appears to have come true, could be read to it that way. But, you know, I mean, as everybody keeps saying, science fiction is not about extrapolating the future, not the actual future. Well, it's, it is about extrapolating the future from the moment that you're extrapolating from. Yes. In the sense that, the, as I said, the future in 1955 looked a lot different from the way it did in 1985. Um, I mean, 1955, we were still looking at a future that had been defined for us by Robert Heinlein's juveniles. Sure. By 1985, we were looking at a future that was beginning to be defined for us by Neuromancer. Well, certainly, I mean, the two, well, the, the biggest change in science fiction that I see really over time is that in the 30s and the, the beginning of the so-called golden age of science fiction, all of the problems were engineering problems, chemical engineering, mm -hmm. uh, mechanical engineering, those sorts of things. And that's why so many of the stories of the day are based around gadgets and machines and those sort of solutions, I think. Quite physical solutions. And now it's, in effect, to sim oversimplify, microchips and quant you know, quantum theory kind of thing are, are the issues. And so the science fiction itself becomes much less techy. I think this is where the, the idea of hard science fiction has evolved over time and why it is, seems harder to pin down in the modern era than it was before. I think once upon a time, hard science fiction was literally hard. I mean, forget the idea of keeping the net up, but that's val valid. Mm. It literally was, you're coming up with a physical solution uh, as well, but, by and large. Whereas now, hard science, I mean, if hard science is following, you know, it's keeping the nets up and following the rules of, of science, well, then science mm. is by no means hard anymore. And that's why you get stories that don't read like old hard science fiction that aren't actually are hard science fiction by any reasonable metric. Well, I think that going back to the early days of what we began to call hard science fiction, I think you're right. A great deal of it, a great deal of Asimov, a great deal of Heinlein was engineering fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, there would be some hard science fiction. The other sort of ancestor of hard science fiction is yep. Hal Clement. And Hal Clement would, would, would use principles of gravity. He would extrapolate on... Um, at least 
principles of physics as he understood them. Yep. Uh, so he would invent planets that where he would invent ice world. He would invent mescaline where the gravity changes the disc shaped world and so forth and so on. Uh, at least that was based on some kind of speculative science. Um, I think the in, uh, what happened at a certain point is that the science became probably too abstruse. When, you're, when you suddenly move from a kind of Newtonian model to a mm. kind of quantum model, then you, be, you, then you risk losing your audience yeah. uh, to some extent. You, you risk making it uh, too difficult for your – you risk the sort of thing that Greg Egan risks all the time. Sure. Well, Which I don't know is, if you noticed, uh, just a very quick aside, if, if you go to his website at, is it gregegan.net, I, th I think it is, he mm -hmm. has an original story that he's published there, uh, out of the blue. I, I think I sent you the link to it. I you sent me the link. I've not read it yet, and no. I'm, I'm excited about it because I find that sort of thing exciting. But there's six large the diagrams things, in it. Well, here's, here's one of the things I think that has happened. I had a student, I was teaching uh, Octavia Butler's novel Kindred to my yep. class last week. And now Kindred is, now Octavia Butler was a knowledgeable and uh, was capable of writing hard science fiction whenever she wanted to. But Kindred is not a science fiction novel. It involves time travel that is a narrative trick. It's not even magic. It's just a narrative trick. The young African-American uh, writer in 1976 finds herself yanked back to 1815. And Butler said repeatedly, there's no, there's no mechanism, there's no explanation. <laughs> I needed to get her back there, so I just sent her there. Oh. So the idea that the student came up with was, well, maybe uh, because when she goes back into the past and she rescues this guy who's going to be her ancestor, he can briefly see her uh, contemporary 1976 furnishings. And so the student said, well, maybe this is a wormhole. Well, no, it's not a wormhole. <laughs> I mean, Octavia Butler never had any dream of its being a wormhole. But the thing is, wormholes are so complicated to understand that people just automatically adopt them as metaphors. The ideas from the quantum indeterminacy uh, is a metaphor that goes back to the 70s. Thomas Pynchon wrote stories based on indeterminacy. The Heisenberg principle, all that sort of stuff is so specific and so uh, sort of boggling that I think people just immediately pick up a lot of modern physics and use it as though it were a metaphor. Greg Egan does not do that. No, he does not. Gregory Benford does not do no. that. Hard science fiction writers don't do that. But readers tend to think, eh, it's well, I mean, it's without, a wormhole. Without, well, without overly criticizing the average science knowledge of any reader in the Western world, I would think that, I, I guess, I just simply guess, mm -hmm. that the majority of science fiction readers reading a science fiction story or novel who encounter a science fiction idea get the broad scope of what it's supposed to do, and that's about it. You know, a wormhole is something that you can theoretically travel through from one place to another. Boom, yeah. that's it. And it's, so, a new, it's a new version of the warp drive or whatever else, and that's, that's it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a new version of the warp drive that sounds vaguely like it might have some rationale in, 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 in current ideas of physics. Tachyons are the same way. Yeah. Uh, there is, as far as I know, one solid hard science fiction novel about tachyon theory, and it's very old now. It's, it's Gregory Benford's Timescape. Yeah, great book. Uh, and it's a great book. It's one, it's, 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 I don't want to say it's his best novel, but it probably is. Um, and... and the fact is that tachyons have since simply been invoked as, oh, okay, this is how we travel backward in time now, or yeah. this is how we travel faster than light now. Or, in other words, you're right. It's just, it's just a buzzword. 
How I don't think people would ever. I don't think people ever thought of gravity that way back in the 30s and 40s. I didn't think. I don't think people thought that gravity. Well, maybe they did. Maybe they. Maybe thought that gravity really meant the Earth sucks. I don't know. But, <laughs> well, the thing is, though, even if you don't understand why gravity works, you understand how it works. Yeah, I mean, you experience it every day. We don't experience wormholes and tachyons every no, day. No, no. Uh, and there's that sort of common sense approach to things, where common sense is in large inverted quotes, uh, that mm. says, you know, sort of, if you can see it and touch it and prod it, it makes common sense. And if you can't, well, then it doesn't. And there's an awful lot of things about science that don't seem to to follow the rules of common sense, and they mm. can cause problems in narrative. Let me ask you this, though. Do you think the importance of science in science fiction has changed? I think it has. And I think part of that has to do with... And I don't know if this is a good development or a bad development. As a literature person who majored in English and got my degrees in English, uh, I kind of like the idea that the science in science fiction has more or less become, I don't want to say subordinated, but it's certainly become a more connected with the literary aspect than it used to be. In other words, uh, I think that science-dominant fiction, that is, fiction that illustrates scientific ideas, the way Gernsback mm. uh, talked about it, tends to get dated very quickly. It tends not to survive very yeah. well. Uh, the stories that do survive well, and I'm including the classic Golden Era stories, I'm including Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and um, Simak and so forth, the ones that survive are good stories. The ones that don't survive are ones that were written to illustrate a particular scientific point of view. For example, there's an Arthur C. Clarke story in, I think it's in the other side of the sky or somewhere, in which he wanted to make an argument that a uh, unprotected uh, astronaut, he didn't, probably probably did use the word, uh, could survive for X number of seconds in the vacuum of space. Uh, and this actually showed up in the movie 2001. Yeah. That if you opened an airlock, flew into the airlock, and closed it, even though you'd be ex you'd be exposed to virtually absolute zero vacuum, that you could survive for maybe 30 or 45 seconds. Um, nobody remembers that story at all. Yeah. The idea is, and, and that's what I'm saying, is that if a, if a science fiction story is written simply to illustrate a principle of science, then it becomes, yeah, it becomes a lecture. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, is, is the romance of, of it more important? I mean, I, 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 always, I, I always look back, just as an aside, to mm -hmm. the first best of the year that Gardner Dozois edited for um, Blue Jay Books a mm -hmm. long time ago. And it had a cover painted by Tom Kidd, who went on to be Nemo and get become well-known yeah. as, basically as a fantasy illustrator. But what it, what it illustrates is a shaper mechanist story that's in the book. Uh -huh. And thrilling. it's... And it shows one of the, I, I guess, mechanists uh, with, his, his, with his sort of you know, me mechanical exoskeleton that he's reshaped his body into, sitting on an asteroid, looking at some event happening in front of him in space. And in mm. effect, what you have is a adapted human able to function in raw vacuum or naked vacuum and able to interact with space as though it's his natural environment. And I found it then and now a very romantic idea in science fictional terms that we could inhabit space uh, on a natural level. So there's this, to me, there's a kind of romantic, almost like small r romantic aspect to 
effective science fictional stories and images far more than the the facts of the science even though it's a hard kind of like a hard science way of dealing with that romance because obviously you and I as we are get our 30 seconds in vacuum and then we perish I think that uh, the idea the rom- the romance is is there I can think of let me th- let me think of a couple of stories right off the top of my head that that sort of deal with that romance and try to get to it uh, in a what seems to be a reasonable scientific way. One is Clifford Simak's famous story, Desertion, mm-hmm. uh, in which in order to survive, well, at the time he wrote it, there was, I guess, thought to be a surface of Jupiter. But the idea of surviving on Jupiter is that you would have to have yourself turned into this uh, Jovian creature. Yeah. Uh, and the reason everybody deserts is because once they realize that they are one with their environment there, they love it, they don't want to come back. Uh, so at least there was an idea of the romance of being on Jupiter, and then he thought, with a little bit of hand-waving, with a lot of hand-waving, that, well, if we sort of genetically and mechanically re-engineer people, we can turn them into creatures that can survive on Jupiter. Much more, much later, and a much more conscientious version of that was Frederick Pohl's Man Plus, yeah. uh, which is a novel that, again, deals, deals with re-engineering a human being to survive on another planet. Yeah. Um, and both of them are hard science fiction approaches to the basic romance you're talking about. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we could walk around on Mars? Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I think many science fiction readers and viewers still respond, get a very sense of wondery, romancy kind of feel about science announcements. When I, I saw one this week where apparently they say somewhere inside Jupiter they think it rains diamonds. That's great. Isn't that great? And you go, oh my God, you know, it's like it's so hot, there's so much pressure, everything else. Molten diamond rains from the sky. And it just is an incredible image. And it's hard not to sort of thrill to that. But then, when I look at the current discussion of the science fiction field, when and where I encounter it, mm-hmm. the response to some of this is very different. You know, uh, there's a feeling that science fiction should be, a, should be addressing very particular modern issues and i understand why that's there but you know that that kind of the almost the gritty street story is more legitimate than the future science you know space opera romance or something the idea of how we're going to physically integrate or not with technology the way how it it impacts on our life on a day-to-day basis all of which can make compelling though often gritty and dark stories but have never been, to my way of thinking, the only solution, but seem more and more to be seen as though they should be, I guess. I think that you can have it both ways. I mean, when when you were talking, I was thinking everything you're saying is almost inevitably true about science fiction short stories. Not necessarily true about novels. Novels, you can essentially do both. Uh, We go back to Kim Stanley Robinson's 2312, which, when you look at the parts of it that deal with Earth, are extremely dark. Yeah, the Earth, the Earth, the Earth is the only planet that's so far gone we can't terraform it. Um, but the rest of it, I mean, if if, if he had known about the diamond storms and uh, and Jupiter, it, it would have been in there. He's, yeah. he's 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 you know he's he's got the romances in there. He's got surfing the rings of Saturn. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, but at the same time, the Earth, yeah, it's it's pretty much gone. Yeah. I, I, the, one of the things I think is is an interesting assumption. Um, and it's become one of the conventions of science fiction almost, is that nothing's going to be done about global warming. We're going to have, we're going to have the Florida archipelago. We're going to have a couple of uh, small, high, high elevation islands left in the British Isles. 
the Canary Islands are going to be gone. Uh, nobody, nobody is warning us about that anymore because it seems to me that the science fiction world has decided, okay, that's, that's just a given in the future. Or not interesting enough to talk about. Well, it's not, it's not new enough to talk about, certainly. Though you do get some examples of it, and even they, you know, um, touch on more the romance of it, if you like. I mean, the, the, the time after the disaster, you know, sort of mm -hmm. everything's flooded, and now we're dealing with this sort of almost agrarian po post-apocalyptic environment where everything's a bit Id idyllic and everybody knows everybody and tech is either very local or non-existent. You know, I'm thinking right now about a story that I hope one day will get turned into a novel, uh, The Choice by Paul McCauley that came out a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, which is a flooded Britain and you know, tech is degraded. Uh, everybody's in, you know, surviving in, the, in this environment. And as a storyscape, it's very, I found it very, very attractive. Uh, but not, I don't know, that it would be to live in. Do you think that global warming is to the current generation of science fiction writers what nuclear war was to the 50s generation of science fiction writers? Maybe. If, if by that well, you mean it's a, uh, uh, well, for average storytellers at least, it's a convenient way of wiping the slate clean. Right, exactly. That's what. That's exactly what I meant. It's uh, and you get to start again. Uh, similarly, you could argue that it's it, it, this this cleaning of the slate in science fiction has existed in dip for, you know, for different things over time. And global warming is, is is what does it right now. Go back five to ten years, it would have been the singularity was going to wipe the slate clean, and everything would right. be different one way or another. You know. Uh, I always come back to Charlie Stross's image in Singularity Sky, I think it was, of uh, the of the people who are invading another planet with a rain, a, a rain of cell phones, you know, as they sp yeah. spread their ideas, you know. Uh, and I look back at, you know, sort of uh, a Celerando on how we thought that was going to be the, the critical future. Now I'm not sure what it is. I mean, global warming sure is currently is taken as being obvious uh science fiction is somewhat well i don't know what its politics are now i was gonna say it, it has it's had a tendency to be somewhat right-wing right, you know, right wing and conservative i guess uh though it's obviously had a strong left-wing influence you know, sort of arm as well there's been both pro and anti things like global warming and believing in it and whether it's scientific enough i mean you you would think the logic for science fiction is if it's if it's scientifically provable then you take it as a given but that doesn't seem to be the case I, I don't know of any science fiction writers who are questioning the idea of global warming now do you not that I can think of but I don't know that I would know about them if that makes sense well that may be true too um, I mean I, th I think you're right that the uh, the paradigm shift to use a word you know from uh, Thomas Kuhn's is not what we expected five years ago the paradigm oh. shift now seems to be that okay the uh, the world will become lesser. It will become diminished. It will become poorer in various ways that have to do with our alteration of the climate. And you're also right, I think, in that a decade or so ago or a decade or two ago, the yeah. paradigm shift would have had to do with virtuality. Yeah. Uh, would have had to do with what happens to, you know, let, 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 let's all get uploaded. And, uh, and, and again, 30 years before that, the paradigm shift was we're going to wipe out civilization with nuclear war. Mm -hmm. um, and... So every, every generation needs to have a way of wiping the slate clean. Um, 
and not all of them are entirely original. I mean, if you look at Deluge, I mean, there's an S. Fowler Wright. I mean, a lot, a lot of these are based on biblical precedents uh, more than on scientific ideas about global warming. There's a, what, 1935 or so S. Fowler Wright novel called The Deluge. There's a Leonardo da Vinci wrote a, a kind of novella about a deluge. Uh, so the idea of the world, you know, going underwater again, in, in all or in part, is, has been a tradition of science fiction. Yeah. Or it's been a tradition of apocalyptic fiction. Now I think we can say, okay, we have enough science to say that this scenario is now a science fiction scenario and no longer a religious or apocalyptic scenario. Is it the nature of science fiction that, it, that these things always disappear and become implausible in retrospect? I think that's true. I mean, one of the interesting things that uh, struck me about Stephen Baxter's Flood series of books, mm. the Flood and, and Ark, is that um, in terms of what caused the world to become inundated, it wasn't global warming, it wasn't human activity, it was just a bunch of water welling up from inside the earth, which is apparently not impossible, but not very likely at all. Yeah, yeah. In other words, it was a very old-fashioned scenario of just having rising waters drown everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not that much different from a J.G. Ballard novel, really. Or, or, or from the S. Fowler Wright novel from 80 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, how much science fiction futures that I thought were absolutely dependable and reliable and going to happen now seem completely unlike, unlikely to me. I mean, I don't, I don't believe we're going to be uploaded. I don't believe in the singularity. And I certainly have grave doubts that we will ever in meaningful ways leave the solar system, at least, if, in fact, the Earth. Do you think that's a problem that science fiction readers have? Because I think one of the things that... Um, I mean, I, I, I just sort of habitually look at the bestseller lists um, in the New York Times every week. And, of course, there's nothing on there at all. I mean, Dr. Sleep is – but science fiction used to show up there occasionally. It's, I think in some ways it's more marginalized than ever. I think the science fiction readership is there. Uh, but I think the science fiction idea that appeals to a wider audience is either a frankly dumb idea like Robopocalypse mm-hmm. – um, or um, or one which is so marginally science fiction that people don't even recognize it is science fiction, like in the Barbara King sovereign novel. In other words, do you think that science fiction has just um, run out of futures that they can make people believe in? Do you, do you, when you say make people believe in, do you mean on a large scale or just at all? Well, I, I mean at all. One of the things no, that Paul King... Well, a couple of, a couple of years ago, we, yeah. a couple last year, we were talking about Paul Kincaid's very intelligent essay in which he said science fiction has lost its faith in the future. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that science fiction has a responsibility to have a faith in the f- future, but do you think that science fiction has lost its ability to concoct models of the future that readers, beyond the core readers, are going to find compelling? No, I don't. I think it might be struggling right now, but I don't think it's lost it. I think you can see it in some of the short fiction that's being written. Uh, there's a terrific short antho- e- e-book anthology that's out in the world at the moment about network matter, which mm-hmm. has the, a ring of plausibility to it. Uh, and I don't know whether it's a related story to that, but Ian MacDonald has a story in 12 Tomorrows about uh, was it the, the revolution will, will be refrigerated, I think is the title of it. And it's how all of the the media for this revolution are handled using bit part processing 
uh, extract, you know, taken from junk refrigerators and all kinds of other things and networked mm. together to, to, to use. Uh, these sort of things have a real feeling of plausibility when I read them today. Uh, I think mm. there's still a ro- there's a romance which younger readers that I encounter maybe don't share that I still have. Right, I'm still attracted to the big far future space story. Uh, I'd like to maybe see them merge a little bit more toward you know well incorporate more of a novel of character maybe because I don't think that the big space opera future has is anything more than a, a new form of epic fantasy really. Which I'm sure will horrify some people, but I think it is. Well, it's 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 a convention. I mean, it's I, th- I think um, let's take the one of the great traditions of science fiction, the Generation Starship tale. We keep getting new ones all the time. It's not going to go away. Yeah. Uh, and yet, does anybody really think we're going to build one anytime in anybody's lifetime? It's a wonderful way of creating a microcosm. There's a way in which the Generation Starship tale is a version of the old sea voyage tale sure. where you'd have a group of mixed characters in an isolated environment for weeks at a time, uh, sometimes months at a time, or in some cases, the old, uh, the, 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 there were popular fantasy plays in the thirties, like, uh, like Alfred bound where all the people on a ship eventually discover that they're dead. Um, all that kind of thing. The idea of a microcosm of people, uh, is a very useful, very interesting kind of, um, um, metaphorical setting, and you don't really need to think about whether it's believable or not. Kelly Link's story, Two Houses, um, is set on a generation ship. And it is. Just, it, it's, it's, only, it's only there because that's a neat place to have the kind of character interactions that she needs to have happen in that story. It's there because science fiction intense, intensely is related to frontier fiction. I mean, the frontier is the common set, one of the common settings in science fiction. However, you look at that's it, that's true. Because I mean, science fiction evolves from you know the, the western and from sea stories, and so you know wherever you find a wild frontier is where you you can frame science fiction. I mean, I, I was reading an article online, maybe on io9.com, I think, about mm-hmm. about what they get wrong, what got, what has been gotten wrong with Star Wars movies, and mm-hmm. what they should do for the new Star Wars movies if they want them to be successful. Now, personally, I don't have a, a strong feeling about this, but one point was, it's frontier fiction. Have it on the frontier because we don't want to see what happens in Trantor. We're not really interested. The real kind of one-on-one interactions where things become difficult and stretched and strained and dramatic happen in a frontier situation. And historically in science fiction, you can, you can see a huge tradition of that, and it's undeniably so. Whether it meets what we might consider always the most challenging and interesting side of science fiction, I don't know. Either. Um, I, oh, I, I tend to agree with pretty much everything you said. The idea of the frontier, and there's been a lot of science fiction history which has pointed out things like um, the, um, the Turner thesis. The historian, the American historian Frederick Jackson Turner, decided that the American frontier, which he defined in the census, the U.S. Census, mm-hmm. defined as I forget X number of people per square mile. It may have been 10 people per square mile. Anyway, if you use that as a basis, you can draw a line. And on the, in the case of the United States, the western side of that line is the frontier. And the frontier eventually moves all the way to California, and there are only isolated pockets. So essentially, Turner's thesis was 
the frontier is gone. As of, 18, as of the 1890 census, there is no more frontier that can be defined by, by census data. And at the same time, as this happens, you're getting um, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Henry Ryder Haggard writing mm. stories about other remaining frontiers yeah. on Earth, the interior of Africa, the interior yep. of... Yeah, and, and eventually, of course, you get to the... Uh, you, you, you run out of real estate on Earth, and you have to go to Mars. I think the key, one of the key moments in science fiction history, which I may have mentioned before on this podcast, but we've done so many of them that you can't blame me, <laughs> is, well, it's, it's in the movie John Carter, which is actually a better movie than its catastrophic reputation um, has earned it. Uh, and it amazed me that when that film came out, it actually reproduced the opening scene, as I recall it, of The Princess of Mars, or Under the Moons of Mars, in which uh, John Carter, a Confederate uh, captain, uh, is trapped in the Southwest in a cave surrounded by Apaches, I believe, or some kind of Indians, um, some kind of Native Americans. And his only escape is to suddenly stare at the planet Mars in the sky and be magically transformed there. That's almost, I mean, this is (laughs) the kind of game that, that, that Borges used to love to play. That's almost the moment that the Western gave way to science fiction. Yeah. He is trapped by Indians. He's not going to get out of there. So let's go to Mars and fight the bad guys there. And, and, and suddenly we've solved the whole frontier problem in one scene. Yeah, by ending up on a completely different frontier. Exactly. And and yet, you know, sort of the tale of the 1980s in science fiction is the frontier. The frontier becomes the interior as we move. You know, because we give up on the idea of going out into space and we go literally into what that corny movie called inner space. Okay. You know, that, that was well, the, the cyberspace thing. I think before that, I think we move into the idea that the city represented civilization and the wilderness represented the frontier. Uh, I think by the 1930s, because remember science fiction, isn't the only thing that replaced the Western in the popular imagination. The hard boiled detective fiction was there also. Uh, urban crime fiction was there also. So to some extent, if not by the 1930s, probably by the 1950s, the urban environment itself becomes a frontier. Yeah. It becomes a place where you have to have a gun to survive. It becomes a place where bad guys can jump out you, uh, at you. from. So so the hero, the, and then there's a famous uh, Raymond Chandler essay on this topic, The Simple Art of Murder. The hero is no longer the, the paladin knight of the Old West. It's it's the hard-boiled detective of the of, of, of the yeah. urban East, or, or, or of actually of San Francisco and Los Angeles, which is where Chandler and Hammett were setting the things. So I think that's true. We had the, the the city, the urbanized environment, became the frontier, and then after that, the frontier became the interior frontier. You're talking about the inner space kind yeah, of yeah, thing, yeah. the idea that uh, the kind of psychological model of it. Is Which science- has never gone away entirely. I mean, no. Daryl Gregory still writes very sophisticated psychological and neurological fiction, and I think one of the things that um, is promising to continue to be uh, innovative in science fiction for the next several years is this idea of what's actually going on in neurology, what we're beginning to learn now about the way the brain works. Um, and it, it doesn't lend itself to very simplistic notions of, oh, we will all upload ourselves and no. live forever in, in, in Never Neverland. It means that the brain does really stranger, weirder things than we ever thought it did, mm. and that's good material for science fiction. It is. Do we still need science fiction? 
Did we ever need science fiction? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, yeah. You see, this is one of those things. I mean, I ask that question as I sit here, you know, and, and I realize it's almost a glib, stupid question. Though I'm tempted to ask it just because, hey, it's there to be asked. You know, because when you start asking about what science fiction does and whether what science fiction does has changed and whether science fiction is good or bad or interesting or not interesting, you know, sooner or later, you know, you, you come back to, first of all, sophomoric questions of what is science fiction and then slightly less, marginally less sophomoric questions about what is it for and what what can be done with it. You know, I mean, why does, for example, and this is a question that I half plan to ask a bunch of people at some point, why would someone devote their life to writing or reading science fiction the way that many, many people have that we know in our immediate circles, uh, mm -hmm. unless there's something beyond it other than, gee whiz, I like it, which, which is valid and fine. But, you know, I don't believe Paul McCauley spent 30 years or 40 years writing science fiction. I don't believe that Stephen Baxter spent 30 years writing science fiction. I don't believe Al Reynolds has spent 20, 30 years writing science fiction mm -hmm. because gee whiz, they like it or, 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 or that's the only reason or gee whiz, I can get away with it because it's not a real day job, you know. I think it's because they, you know, I feel it's because they see something more to it. And when I look around now and I see Madeleine Ashby or I see, um, uh, why have I gone, Anne Leckie or, or uh -huh. whoever else around or, or Kathy Goonan uh, writing science fiction or I see Peter Watts or I, these are not people who strike me as being uh, light, light, you know, people who are going to, you know, devote their time to thinking about and writing science fiction just for the, for the fun of it or just because they want to avoid a day job. You know, there's something more substantial to, to why you would do it. I, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I, I, I don't think we'd get exactly the same answer from any two people that we no. asked about it. Um, some of them... It's, it's, it's what they do best, I, mean, yes. I suspect. I mean, I suspect, I don't know if, I don't know how good a biologist Paul McCauley was, but I can't imagine he was a much better biologist than he is a science fiction writer, so maybe he just turned out that this is what he does better. Is it something that's necessary for individuals? I think the only way to answer that probably is to find out, um, to not, to, to really take a vacation from reading it and see what it is that you miss. Um, every once in a while, as I've complained about to you many times, both on and off of the podcast, uh, if, if I've got a, I've got a pile every month of a sure. lot of science fiction yeah. and fantasy books, and every, at least two or three times a year, I think I just want to not do this. I want to just go out <laughs> and read some nonfiction. I want to read uh, this past week. Alice Munro, you know, got the Nobel Prize. I'd read a few of her stories in the New Yorker over the years. They're really, really good. I have no doubt that she deserved it. I feel like I should take some time off, and not, I've not done that in many, many years, but, but the last time I did, uh, I found myself reading fiction, which in many ways was better written than most science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, there were stylists who were uh, more sophisticated than most, not all science fiction writers, um, and the fiction was very rewarding in all kinds of ways. I'd take, spend my time reading mysteries and so forth, spend my time reading mainstream stories. And at a point, there's a realization that you're not getting something. Mm. Um, and what it is you're not getting, I don't think I ever ever was able to define very articulately, but whatever that is you're not getting is what makes science fiction yeah. survive, I think. I don't think people uh, who find it as compelling as people like you and I do 
can can just walk away from it and not miss what's going on there. Uh, it does do things that other kinds of fiction don't do. I have to say that, I mean, I, well, first of all, I think we both risk constant, you know, have the constant risk of burnout in what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, managing stuff for Locus, you reading for Locus, me reading for the best of the year. You know, there are times when you just sit there and you go, oh, I'm so weary of the whole idea of it all. And I have had a couple of science fiction holidays, if you like, where I've just not read any at all. In fact, I once had a whole year where uh-huh. I didn't read any science fiction. And there have been times in the last four or five years where that sounded dreadfully attractive, I have to say. And yet, there's something about when you pick up a science fiction story, and, I, and there's, a, there's a different, though equivalent, feeling in a great fantasy story as well. Yeah. Where you get something out of it that you don't get out of anything else. There's a, it's not just simply the sense of wonder thing, which is, I think, becomes for many people a catch-all for whatever this, this thing is. There's something about engaging with the future, understanding the world, uh, being shown something that is genuinely, and I'm going to use a word here that's far too devalued it right now, that is genuinely awesome, genuinely awe-inspiring. Yeah. That is what, I mean, which I, you don't get as much. I'm not going to say you don't get it, but you don't get it as much in non-science fiction or fiction. You know, you're not faced with the idea of it raining diamonds <coughs> on Jupiter. You're not you're not faced with the idea directly. I mean, in, in, in hmm. mainstream novels, you can certainly have characters go through these feelings. You can have characters, like in a Juno Diaz novel in Oscar Wilde, you can have characters who feel that, but you're you're experiencing it secondhand through those characters. Yeah. Uh, there are lots of mainstream writers who are very sympathetic to science fiction and can represent the effect that science fiction has on its readers and Diaz is one of them, um, but but you don't get the experience firsthand, and I think you're right. The, the the sense of wonder, which is a terribly overused. I mean, it's a phrase which which we in the science fiction field have completely denatured by mm. using it so ab- absolutely meaninglessly. Yeah. Um, but but what it purports to describe is real. There is something there that is what in the 18th century they would have possibly called the sublime. Yeah. It's awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time. Uh, interestingly enough, romantic poets tried for that all the time. I mean, mm. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is an, is an effort at a sense of wonder. Uh, Poe's, uh, uh, not only his stories, but some of his poems are an effort at a sense of wonder. So, so that sense of longing, that sense of, uh, the German word they use. The German romantics had a word for it called Sehnsucht, seeing afar. Um, so the idea has been around for a long time, and now finally we have a whole genre which is devoted not only to maintaining that idea, because that idea of of longing or Sehnsucht or whatever it is, you can argue is, mu- is as much a part of the fantasy genre as it is of science fiction. What science fiction offers is a connection between that idea and where we are now, and kind of a almost mechanical cause and effect this is how we can get from there to that from here to that sense of wonder so a sense of wonder at the universe around us and how it really functions and a sense of excitement and engagement when we're shown ways it could happen yeah the, the i think what science fiction does is showing us ways that that can happen making um, giving us ways that we can live in a romance that the science fiction um, romance to some degree, or that it might be possible? 
Well, one of the things that uh, it bothers me when a science fiction novel, especially a dystopian novel, fails to even attempt to do this or, 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 or does it very um, haphazardly. A good example is The Hunger Games, the entire Hunger Games series. Now, I only read the first one, but I assume the first one has most of the information that you need to know as to how this world came about. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard to fill in the blanks. It's really hard starting from today's society to get to the Hunger Games society without making a lot of really unlikely assumptions. Sure. Uh, when Orwell was writing 1984, or for that matter, when Paul McCauley was writing Whole Wide World, you didn't have to make any assumptions at all. No. All the technology was there. It was simply yeah. a matter of how it's deployed. Uh, so that kind of thing, science fiction, shows you both. Hello? Hello? Hello, Gary? Hello again. Oh, uh, uh, was I rambling uh, off disconnectedly there? We're always <coughs> rambling off disconnectedly, uh, Gary, but in this instance we began to random, random, <laughs> okay. ramble off unconnectedly, well, which is more of a problem. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, okay, we're but we're, okay now. We're, we're back everywhere. Okay, we're reconnected uh, now. We are reconnected, so we can continue. I don't know if I've got to actually merge these files. Doesn't matter. I'll I'll put a little bit of blurby in, and if I don't, I'll just let everybody know that once again our technology failed us, and maybe began to sort of truncate a conversation about what science fiction is doing. At the time, it was probably not a bad idea to truncate <laughs> truncate it. Yeah, I'm getting. I think we should. I think we're gonna have to disconnect the um, FaceTime. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what caused that, but uh, look, I don't know uh, what's. I guess the, the 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 point, which doesn't connect very well with what we were saying when when you were cut off, uh -huh. is what is it that science fiction isn't doing that a lot of the younger readers we hear complaining about science fiction want it to do? Because I mean, I've been reading science fiction for forty years. Uh -huh. You've been reading science fiction for longer. Um. Maybe we don't have the most objective view on this. And when I encounter, you know, uh, particularly English critics, I, I hear I hear when I'm sort of following Twitter and everything else, like Jonathan Macklemont and Ian Sales, uh -huh. they're not overly thrilled with the state of the science fiction field today. Nor are someone who's closer to our, our ages, like um, uh, I want to like Paul Kincaid. Paul Kincaid. You know, yeah. What is it that, that's actually missing? What what is it that it's failing to do that is uh, is bothering them so much in your mind? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it's failing to do anything as a, as, as a field. I mean, that's I have this problem when you discuss science fiction as though everything science fiction does is by committee vote and, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. this year we're going to do singularities, next year we're going to do something yeah. else. Um, I think that what happens is that at some point all readers begin to keep looking for, for the kind of newness and the kind of thrills that that they that they had when they first fell in love with science fiction that lasted for years and years. I mean, I still find myself reading, I'm still reading a year's best anthology now and wondering to get that occasional story that just more or less knocks my socks off. Mm. It's the more science fiction you read, the harder and harder it is to find that sort of thing. Um, so I think there, there is a tendency for science fiction to repeat itself. I don't think that's a new tendency at all. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that if you went back to science fiction stories of the 1980s, 
you could find a lot of stories then that looked like they were retreads of stories of the 40s and 50s. Mm. And today you can find a lot of stories that look like they're retreads of the stories of the 70s and 80s. Um, that's, that's inevitable in any field. I don't think you can avoid that. Um, I think what happened is, is, is to some extent we all do, be, do, we do become jaded. We expect things from science fiction we don't expect from any other kind of literature, uh, which is that we expect to be absolutely awestruck every time out. And that can't happen. Well, yes, but some some of these people would argue that, you know, they don't even need it to, to, to sort of strike awe into them. They'd like it to not fill them with bile and contempt because it's either sexist, ageist, racist, or it doesn't engage with the world around them and is living some sort of puffball of fantasy that doesn't actually talk to what's happening around us today. You know, I mean, and, and I, I'm torn because I've got a great, whilst I have a love for the history of the field, I have a great connection to that sort of argument as well. I mean, I, I do sometimes look and I think, you know, goodness, this doesn't really have much to do with anything. I mean, and obviously, I mean, you, you don't want to judge bad science, or, well, science fiction by bad science fiction, but even some of the really, really good science fiction or what is hailed as really, really good science fiction doesn't do that. It doesn't do that, but it, 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 again, I go back to the idea that not all science fiction does the same thing. The science fiction which... Um, uh, which I found exciting, science fiction and fantasy, which I found exciting in the last few years, does address different ways of looking at science, different ways of looking at the future. Um, what, I'm, what I've been reading now, uh, this, just today as a matter of fact, I finished a new collection of stories by Nettie Okorafor, some of which are science fiction, some of which are not. Uh, the science fiction parts of it are clearly set in her version of a far future Sudan yeah. or a near future uh, Niger. And it's the, the science fiction ideas themselves aren't terribly original. The way she deploys them, the culture she deploys them in, the way she talks about the manner in which people interact with their environment is completely new. And she's yeah. done this in her novels as well. Um, that is exciting. Yeah. Um, it is exciting when you have um, uh, a, a traditional science fiction hero who is... Um, non-white, non-American, non-heterosexual, and so forth. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that the science fiction ideas are going to be completely new. It's combining all these things yeah. together to make something that looks new. Uh, so, so, yeah, there's there, there's a sense in which science fiction looks at its own navel. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's always done that. I, yes. I, I, I think since 1937, at least, it's been staring at its own navel. And the fact that every generation we have a bunch of writers who's forces to look in other directions is a very healthy sign. And I don't know that we're, as a matter of fact, I would make an argument that we have more writers making us look in other directions now than we did 20 years ago. Are we so hungry for new voices and new points of view, though, that we are less than fair to the old ones? Um, the old ones... I have to keep up. I had somebody today who I want, uh, somebody this week who I shall not name, who mm -hmm. said that the magazine that you and I uh, work for, Locus, was out of touch with what was actually exciting and interesting in the field, didn't know what was going on, and was not being widely regarded as a result. Now, I dispute mm -hmm. that, but it is interesting to think about how you know, whether whether you do lose track of what's relevant in the field at any given time. Now, personally, this individual, and I'll tell you off, off 
uh, off mic, if you want, who it was and what the argument was. I think they are actually off step in this case. But I do get very concerned about it regularly that you can insulate yourself from the new and different and engaging stories and important stories that need to be told because you're preoccupied with the existing ones or you're caught up too much in a limited dialogue that doesn't allow you to get out there and actually find and encounter and value new voices. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's a danger we all face, and I think that we've talked about it before. The problem with that assumption, the problem with any one institution or magazine or, uh, or, or school being out of touch with what's really going on is that it implies there is still one dialogue going on, and it still implies it implies that there's still some kind of monolithic notion of what science fiction is and isn't. And as you and I have said several times before on this podcast, there's not just one dialogue anymore. It's not just a few people talking to each other. It's yeah. not just the analytical laboratory of of, of uh, analog magazine, you know, writing in. Uh, and, and telling people how they like the stories. There are too many different dialogues going on in too many different areas. And I think that those of us who are professionally involved in the field have some responsibility to try mm. to keep up with many of them. Um, not necessarily every single one, in the sense that I'm not very well-versed in movie tie-ins or in gaming. Yeah. Let me ask you this, this though. Do we, within the field, become so desperate to both find these these new voices and new points of view and applaud them that sometimes we overdo it and you'll find a good but not great book being lauded beyond its merits because we are enamored with both the idea of it being new and enamored with the idea of, the, of being the people who found out that it was new and brought it to somebody else. I, I think know, that's true. A, a, yeah. a, a great example I think of is The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. Mm -hmm. which I think is a good but not a great book. I think Paolo's written good bo better books since then, uh, and I think the fact that it is the second most or equal most awarded book in the history of science fiction distorts its merits or overstates its merits, however good it may be. I looked this well, year at Anne Leckie's book, Ancillary mm -hmm. Justice, which I'm reading and not yet finished, but is a good book, but I think probably but not a great book. It's a good book. And an interesting book, but, a, but as many others are, flawed books that are well worth reading and talking about. But I just get this feeling with the way the buzz is already picking up. And I don't want to stop it because it deserves to be read and talked about. But I think it's going to balloon it up beyond what the book is. It could very well be. I, I, have, um, I have some difficulty with, with the idea, which is the most commonly bandied about term possibly in criticism of science fiction. I have a problem with the word flawed, as this is, this is a... You, you, you a, think flawed is flawed? There is no such thing as a book which is not flawed. Okay, if somebody sure. has a book which is not flawed, show it to me. I want to see it. <laughs> the question okay. is, do the flaws interfere with your uh, apprehension of the book? My sense of uh, The Wind-Up Girl is that... I, I didn't find it that revolutionary because the basic ideas in it were outlined in his short stories yeah. before that. Yeah. Yes. But the stories like The Yellow Card Man and... Uh, the calorie man and so forth and so on struck me when I was reading them and, e and even things like the people of uh, sand and slag sure struck me as a new way a really dark and mordant way of looking at the future but it was a new way of looking at the future that I hadn't really thought about before I hadn't thought about calories sure. as sure. currency so he did give us a slightly different paradigm uh, and and he writes very well so so all that became a new kind of science fiction 
He took off with it. It became enormously popular. I will give you an example of somebody about 10 years ago who had the same impact on me and seems not to have have had the, well, the broader impact in the field was David Marasek. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought his stories and things like the wedding album and his Counting Heads, his first novel, uh, were just stunningly original. And by and large, most of the people that I talked to who had read them had the same feeling. Uh, they don't seem to be having. Yeah, okay. Uh, the voluntary uh, state by Christopher Rowe. Yes, exactly. You know, brilliant story, fantastically extrapolated future. You felt like you were standing on the precipice of having the same experience you did when you were reading early Gibson that became Neuromancer, when you read those mm -hmm. great early stories from Bacigalupi that were further extrapolated as that voice and view was further extrapolated into the field. Uh, arguably the same thing you had with early Strauss, early Egan, you know. Uh, not so much that there's any similarities with Rowe's work and their work, but that there was a strong idea and worldview and something that's going to be you know, developed and evolved over future works, which to, to date they haven't been, even though he has written other interesting fiction. I think that's true, and I think that, uh, so, so why do some things take off and some things not? I mean, well, I was uh, thinking about, go ahead. This isn't taking off, though. This is the author pursuing them. Well, okay, the author pursuing them is another question. Yeah. Um, I think I think Paolo has, has pretty consistently pursued yeah. the basic scenario. His basic scenario that ends up with the wind-up girl is is implicit in the drowned cities and... Uh, uh, and, and shipbreaker. In other words, you can you can see his view of the future as being pretty consistent, pretty consistent throughout his short fiction. And from from what he told us on the podcast about uh, the water knife, it's it's fairly consistent there too. So and, the and idea zombie having, baseball beatdown, as you you know you reviewed recently, is the same sort of thing, very much. Even even that, I mean, the, the, the zombie baseball beatdown for people who don't who think it's just a fun um, throwaway uh, baseball novel with zombies in it is. Just it's it's like reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. It's just a searing <laughs> indictment of the meatpacking industry. It's and not to mention the um, United States Immigration um, Authority. So so yeah, his anger and his passion is very focused. It's there in all of his fiction in one way or another, um, and and that sort of thing, I think does have an impact. I mean, it, it's one of the things looking at Nettie Okorafor's stories, and and. Many of the stories are connected either to the mm. far future world she has in Hooper's death or in or in the uh, uh, sort of magical planet world that she has in um, her her young adult novels. and but th but there's a consistent sense of of injustice, of in, of, of, of cultural um, assumptions which we don't necessarily share or know about. There's a relationship between the way she uses science fiction and the way she uses African or Nigerian folklore specifically um, that strikes me as being not just original. She's not just done it once, but fairly consistent. She yeah. comes back to the same concerns again and again. So my sense is that a writer who comes back to these concerns, who, who really, I'm not, I'm not saying somebody who just retreads the same yeah, territory, yeah, yeah, yeah. but explores different areas of it. I think Paolo is like that. I think Nettie is, is becoming more like that. I think Gibson was like that. Yes. Uh, I think Gibson, every time Gibson comes out, there's some other aspect of the world that eventually became the Gernsback Continuum or Neuromancer sure. yeah. or whatever it is. In other words, he sees uh, the future uh, in, in what he sees. I will say this because it occurred to me as we were talking. Possibly more than anybody else in the last 40 years, I think Bacigalupi has more repaid the 
attention paid to him than any other writer. You know, for a man who received an astounding number of awards and whatever else for The Wind-Up Girl, mm. the work that followed it has built on it and extrapolated on it and seems to promise to develop it further than almost anybody else I can think of. That may very well be true. There's a there's a sense in which, uh, well, uh, he, he he decided to turn to young adult fiction because he ha he does have a kind of missionary zeal. He believes yeah. in what he's doing. He believes in the power of fiction to change people's minds. Uh, and in that sense, he's a muckraker. Uh, in, in in the best early 20th century sense of the word, he is out to expose the things that are going wrong in our world and show exactly, you know, what they can lead to in the context of really pretty well realized adventure stories mm -hmm. uh, you don't really need to have the you go back to the wind-up girl for example the one thing that frankly rang a slightly false note with me are the megalodonts or whatever they call them um they're great for the novel there'd be great special yeah. effects in the movie i just didn't see that happening frankly no, it's, it's just <laughs> well you but, know what you know, you, <laughs> yeah Yes, you, you give every writer the right to invent some things just because they're fun to invent. <laughs> but on that note, Gary, we, we actually have gone beyond our hour, so maybe it's time for me to go off and look at sort of 12-year-old girl birthday parties and for us to sort of set things aside for another week. And another week um, will be our last one before we actually head off for London. Yeah, we have to find a way right. to get a couple of podcasts in before we go, Gary. We'll do that. And... Pass along best birthday wishes from will, myself and all our listeners to Sophie. And, yes, we will be back next week and in Brighton, and so it shall go. Till all right. Then. Okay. Till Great then. talk to you as always. Bye. Bye.